I am thankful to say that I am a very spoiled person. I just, well, Tanya and me got home from a week in Florida, which was great, and I'm very thankful we had Stu manage our farm without me, and Keenan did a very excellent job here, so I'm thankful that I can be away and that things still move on just as well, maybe better in some ways. But it's good to be back, and it's good to be back in God's Word. And so we're going to carry on with where we left off last week. We're going to look at Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. So I'll ask you to go there and then stand in reverence as we read God's Word together. And these are the potent words of God. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And may God bless the reading of his word. In... The Alice in Wonderland, there is a very memorable scene where Alice meets up with the Cheshire cat. And Alice asks the cat, would you tell me please which way I ought to go from here? And the Cheshire cat says, well, that depends a good deal on where you want to go. And Alice replies, I don't care much where. And then the Cheshire cat says, well, then it doesn't really matter which way you go, does it? Sometimes, it seems to me, like the church, and maybe we as individual Christians are a little bit like Alice. We're directionless. We want someone to tell us where to go, but we have no idea what the game plan is. So it doesn't really matter where we go. And so we want to look this morning at several questions we might have about the church. If we are directionless, if we're not sure of our sense of identity. A few questions we want to ask and answer this morning is, what is the church? What is the church? Worth asking. What is the church's ultimate foundation? And then a question about teleology or where things are going. Where is the church going? What does the future ahead of us look like? And what kind of authority does the church have? And how is it to operate within that authority? And I think sometimes these are questions that are lacking a clear answer today. And perhaps worse than not having answers to these questions is perhaps people aren't even thinking about those questions. Perhaps we're just on cruise control because Sunday morning is a great social time and we're used to going to church on Sunday morning and we're not even thinking about any of these questions. But we want to look at them and hopefully answer them today. There's a lack of engagement that I think we've been seeing in our society for some time. And I think this lack of engagement in the church is worse for men, typically, than it is for women. For a complex host of reasons, feminine expressions of personal holiness have come to be seen as normal for both genders. So softness and tenderness and a real deep sense of experiential living, while that's virtuous for women, clearly, I think men have been uh, trained to think that that's normal, as though feminine piety is the highest piety for men as well. And it's glorious have feminine piety if you're a woman, and not so much if you're a man. It creates confusion. And of course, there is a sense in which all Christians, male or female, need to be soft in the heart and to yield to God's will. But if it's overdone, softness can turn into a kind of empathy which prizes victimhood, which sees sin as a pathology or a disorder rather than as rebellion against God, and then which naturally will treat the gospel as therapy, Right? We live in the age of the therapeutic. So naturally the gospel becomes about therapy rather than an announcement of blood-bought redemption for rebel haters of God, bringing them in to God's family as friends and adopted sons and daughters. And in this vision, Jesus moves from head crusher that's promised in the garden to a life coach. He's there to kind of help keep you on track, 
right? Because you're basically good. We're all basically good. We make a few missteps sometimes, and so we need a life coach to help us. And this creates further confusion. In the year 2005, an author by the name of David Murrow wrote a provocative book addressing the masculinity problem in the church, which was aptly titled, Why Men Hate Going to Church. And I'm happy to say that this church is an exception, but statistics would suggest that overall in North America, the church is almost 70% female. That's a problem. If society was 70% female, that would be perfectly fine, but it's not. (laughs) What's going on with the men? Further confusion. Maybe you'll remember as far back those heady times of 2020 through 2022 when church gatherings were seen as non-essential. And many Christian leaders agreed with this assessment. And some in this region even wrote a letter to our provincial government thanking them for keeping us safe and thanking them for shutting down church gatherings because the gathering of God's people was seen as non-essential. Is that reasonable? Is that reasonable? Some other questions we might ask. You go to Europe, you go to old places where Christianity has been for millennia, and you look at the architecture, and the architecture itself speaks about how people viewed the kingdom of God. And our very utilitarian architecture also speaks a very different message. Glory and beauty have been turned into mere utility and pragmatism. Can we picture the world in which the author of Moby Dick, Herman Melville, said that the pulpit rules the world like a captain of a ship behind his crow's nest? That's how he saw the pulpit. Can we even envision a world in which that makes sense? And speaking of pulpits, why have big oak pulpits turned into movable music stands? What's that communicating? What's that communicating? Our customs speak. To what degree has style replaced substance? Do we have a clear vision of the mission of the church? Today's passage is going to answer some of the most foundational questions of church life. In this exchange, Christ is going to reveal what the church is, what its foundation is, what its future trajectory looks like, and how it is to be governed and how it is to operate. The passage opens with narrative. It says, now Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi and he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? We've already seen in past narratives how the details of the story matter. Jesus goes to one region and performs a miracle and then he goes to another region and performs the same miracle, seemingly communicating something different in both audiences because of where he's at and who his audience is. The details of these biblical stories really matters. And now he's in Caesarea Philippi, which is highly significant. This city is named by Herod the Great's son, Philip. And he named it to honor Caesar Augustus. But since there was already another city named Caesarea, he added his own name to it. So it's Caesarea Philippi, Philip's Caesarea. And the city is about 25 miles north of Galilee, And it is the place, interestingly enough, this is why God wastes no details. This is the location where in 1 Kings 12, 25 through 33, Jeroboam introduces Baal worship. He introduces idolatry into Israel by sacrificing to Baal at this spot. This is a bad place. This is where idolatry sinks its hooks in. The Greeks turned this place into a shrine. There was once a temple there in dedication of Zeus, and this was also a place where they worshipped Pan. And when the Romans took this region over, they turned this place into the empire cult, Caesar worship. This was a place where statism and the glory of this unbreakable Roman empire and uh, lauding the state and her statist glory was worshipped. There was a dance floor here dedicated to the sacred goats. This is an idolatrous, idolatrous place. And I would encourage you, when you get home, do a Google image search of the mountain. Do search for the Caesarea Philippi Mountain or Caesarea Philippi Gates of Hell. And you're going to see a very odd 
geographical feature. You're going to see a mountain with a big hole in it, and you're going to see a bunch of little, you know when rocks, when people cut out little window-type-looking things, little ledges? I've seen some of those in the American desert in Arizona. They would cut these little windows out, and they would put their little shrines and their little gods in there, and there was this dance floor, and there's temples. But in this rock is a large, gaping hole that once upon a river fed out of. And that river came to feed the Jordan River. And after a significant earthquake, that hole caved in and water started seeping out other places. And the ancients understood that that river underneath was the river Styx. And that this gaping, yawning, eerie-looking hole in the side of this mountain was a portal into Hades. This was the gate of hell. That's how they understood it. So in a very literal sense, Jesus is walking his disciples right up to the gate that opens up to the underworld of the gods, to the dark deities, to Hades, to Sheol, to hell. This was a portal. And so in a very literal sense, Christ walks his disciples right up to these yawning, open jaws of hell. And he's going to teach them something. And he picked the perfect spot to do it. He asked them who they think he is. And verse 14 goes on to say, And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father, who is in heaven. We've gone on enough, long enough in this gospel to know that Peter is pretty hit and miss with his track record. He's got an impulsive, zealous nature that means sometimes he gets himself into a lot of trouble and he needs a rebuke from Christ. But we've also seen glimmers of maturity and progress in Peter's life. And in this test, he gets an A+. He gets this one perfect. Jesus' question is addressed to the whole group, and they throw out a number of possible answers of who people are saying that Jesus is. John the Baptist is a possibility to the crowds. News didn't travel quite as fast in those days as it does now, so maybe many of them hadn't heard that John the Baptist was dead, and so this was him. Or maybe they thought, like Herod did, that this was a resurrected John the Baptist, and they were kind of scared of him, kind of in a superstitious way. The guests of Elijah also make certain sense because in Malachi 4 verse 5, the return of Elijah is promised. Some guess Jeremiah. And on the first blush, this seems like an odd guess. But Jeremiah does stand out as one of the preeminent prophets of the Old Testament. And there were certain Jewish traditions that Jeremiah would reappear when the Messiah, when Mashiach would come. So it's not a totally silly guess. But this last guess is interesting because it's kind of generic. It's actually really lazy. One of the other prophets, right? Here's some people thinking this through and they offer precise guesses. And then it's just, well, yeah, just one of the prophets. It's lazy. What I find interesting is that's how people treat Jesus Christ today, right? Who is Jesus Christ today? Well, he's a good teacher. He's maybe a prophet, right? Uh, They're willing to grant that. But few are willing to confess that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. And so this lazy guess mirrors our own confused generation. Jesus cannot be a great teacher. Impossible. If he is not the Son of God, because he himself confesses that he is the Son of God. And great teachers don't lie about foundational things. Okay? Jesus cannot be a great teacher unless he is also God the Son. Because his announcement, if I told you I was the Son of God, all of you should quit listening to me immediately. You could no longer say that I was a good teacher. If I'm confused about something that foundational, Jesus is not a good teacher without being the Son of God with it. By his own confession, he is the second person of the Trinity. He is not only the Son of God, but he is also God the Son. And Peter, acting as a spokesman for the group here, answers correctly. And you can almost sense Jesus' sense of joy here when he replies to Peter. In verse 17, it's not so much that Jesus is conferring or putting a fresh blessing on Peter, but recognizing that God has already put a tremendous blessing on Peter by opening his eyes to see who the God-man is. 
And then Jesus replies in a way that layers several meanings on top of each other. The naming here involves several turns of phrase. We all know Peter goes by several names in the Bible. Sometimes he's Peter, sometimes he's Simon, sometimes he's Cephas. And here Christ calls him Simon Barjona, which just means Simon, the son of John. And Jesus is drawing attention to Peter's very frail humanity. This is just a guy named Simon who's a fisherman and his dad's name is John. That's how spectacular this guy is. There's nothing spectacular about him. And then Jesus says, that's why flesh and blood didn't reveal this, but my Father in heaven. In himself, Peter is nobody significant, and yet the Father has opened up Peter's eyes in order to use him in a very profound and significant way. And so Peter's confession is not native to who he is as a person. It doesn't originate from him himself, but it is a gift of grace. It's a gift of seeing from the Father to Peter. And likewise for us, we are all sons and daughters of Adam, and we all have feet of clay. And for each one of us, it remains the case to this very day that unless or until our blinders fall off, we have no natural ability in ourselves to see who Jesus Christ is and to confess it honestly. It remains a gift of grace for the blinders to fall off. We sang earlier, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." If you get scared of who God is, if you feel shame for your sin, that's a gift of grace because that's the first step to graft you into Christ. It's all of grace. And Peter receives grace in spades here. And Peter gets called a rock, Petros, by Jesus. And the play on words and on location moves on. In verse 18, Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This has been a very hotly debated text in church history. Roman Catholics have used this text frequently to establish their claim that Peter was the first pope, he was the first bishop of Rome and therefore a pope, and therefore uh, what Peter says is infallible, and, and all his successors down to today uh, are the infallible head of the church. And so this has caused no small amount of heat and debate through the ages of church history. And there are three possibilities of what this means that Peter is the rock. What is the rock here? One view says that the rock in view here is Peter himself. Another view says that the rock on which Christ will build his church is Peter's confession that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And a third view suggests that the rock in view here is Christ himself. So it's the rock of Peter's confession, not Peter himself. And I think this last view is probably the least likely... And while it is true that Peter's confession that Christ is Lord is foundational and you will not have a true church without that confession, I don't think that's what's in view here either. I think if it wasn't for the Roman Catholic abuse of this text, it would be obvious to all of us that the rock that Jesus is speaking of is Peter himself as he makes this confession. Peter, or Petros, is the play on words here, and Cephas is actually another play on the word rock as well. So Peter's names point to him being the rock. He's, another, he's being called another name for rock, Petros, Peter. So Christ is calling Peter a rock here. And I do believe this is entirely fitting. Peter is not by himself in this task of being a rock, but he is singled out in this exchange as a representative among the apostles because it's him who's speaking on behalf of the twelve. And so here, Christ declares Peter to be a rock on which the church is built. And that theme is picked up in Ephesians 2, verse 20, which describes the household of God as being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. And Peter himself, no doubt understanding the significance of this exchange with Christ, talks this way in his own epistle. In 1 Peter 2, verse 5, Peter calls believers living stones in the new temple that God is building, the Christian church. 1 Corinthians 3.16 speaks of our bodies in reference to this new temple reality. And as well-meaning as people are to use that verse about your body being a temple as though it's about physical health, so that may well be an application. But what's being communicated there is you're part of the temple. You are a temple. This is the new humanity that God is building. You are a stone. You are a living stone, according to Peter, in this temple. 
And this makes sense. Again, if we look back at the old types and shadows, we have this kind of language as early as Daniel chapter 2. That Christ is this rock that hurtles down to earth, shattering the old empires and then growing into a mountain. So Christ's whole mission after he comes here is for more and more rock to be added until this great mountain is built after the old world order is destroyed. And so the picture is that God is building a rock-solid new covenant people, a new and better temple, the Christian church. With Christ as the cornerstone, he is what everything is oriented around, is that cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And Peter is the first stone among the apostles to be added to that foundation. Ephesians says all the apostles and prophets are part of that foundation, but Peter is the first one here to get put in because he's the first one to confess and to speak on behalf of the twelve in this exchange. And this is also why the foundational work of the apostles is unique in history. You only build one foundation. You don't keep adding foundation on foundation. Once the foundation is done, you start your building. You start adding these living stones. And so this is why these men possess certain gifts and certain abilities that were unique to their time, and we no longer have possession of them. Since this time, God has continued on this temple project, living stone by living stone by living stone, cutting and shaping and grafting in as needed. And all of this is being announced at Caesarea Philippi, where there is a giant rock, a monument on which many forms of idolatry have been built up over the ages. Christ takes Peter and the others right up to the yawning mouth of Hades, into the belly of idolatry, right up to the very gate of hell. And he tells him, Peter, this is where I'm planting my flag. This is where we are declaring war on the gates of hell, and you are the first one in this foundation. Here's your mission, guys. Peter is going to lay his foundation rock right at the gate of hell. And amazingly, the church that is going to be built on this rock is going to conquer. And according to Christ's promise himself, it's going to win. Evil and death, hell and Hades will not prevail by the very admission of Christ, even on its own home turf. Jesus is taking the game to them. He's going to the gates of hell and announcing, this is where we fight from. God has irreversibly planted his kingdom on earth, and now it is a permanent expression and feature in creation. And the disciples standing here and listening to Jesus could look back and see how this has already been unfolding, this plan. Maybe they could look back to what we read in Matthew 2, and the slaughter of the innocents when the God-man came as a little baby, and a great slaughter goes out to stop him, and Rachel is weeping for her children as though God's purposes are going to get thwarted, as though this rock is going to get cut off before it can demolish these empires. And yet, miraculously, God preserves these people as they take flight because Christ is going to build his church. The disciples are going to hear Jesus tell them that they're going to suffer many things and be rejected and die. And yes, he does promise that he'll be raised again, but they quit hearing after, they, after he said that he was going to die. That's all they could hear. Our hero was going to die. And he does die. And it looks like there's laughter coming out of these gates. This wicked hiss of laughter and victory coming through these gates of hell as though God's purposes have been thwarted. But on the third day, a stone rolls away because Jesus is going to build his church. And then Paul gets imprisoned, and he gets put in this Mamertine prison 20 feet below ground. And it looks like it's all done. The gospel can't go out if our chief apostle is in prison in a hole in the ground. And yet, as Chad Weeb gloriously pointed out when he came here to preach, Paul's attitude was, they can't get away now. These guys are forced to listen to me sing and teach and write scripture for the churches. They can't get away from me. This is perfect. God has me right where he wants me because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So Paul presses on and he mentors young pastors in his dying days, Timothy and Titus, and instructs them what to do because Jesus is going to build his church. And this isn't just for the big names. Under Nero and his wicked persecution of the church and the many fiery trials that the early Christians have to face in 1 Peter 4.12, 
we see again that this gaping mouth of hell and death and suffering is attempting to swallow up the Christian church in its infancy while it's still helpless and small and weak. And yet the promise of Jesus carries on because Jesus has promised to build his church. Shortly after the days of the apostles, the old man Polycarp, 86 years old, is hauled out in front of the Colosseum And he is about to be burned for his confession in Christ. And one of the great ironies of the Christian church was that one of the allegations against Christians was that they were atheists. Because we didn't confess all the multiple Roman gods. We didn't believe in multiculturalism back then either. And because Polycarp was unwilling to take the charge of atheists, he gets bound up as an 86-year-old man, ready to get burned. And tradition has it that he wouldn't die from burning, so finally one Roman soldier stepped through the flames and kept stabbing him in the chest with his sword until he would die. And Polycarp could get out of all of it if he just would look at his Christians, his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and point to them and say, away with the atheists. And this old man says, how can I deny a Savior who has been good to me for 86 years? And he looks at the Romans and he says, away with the atheists! And he goes up in a sheet of flame. But that is a man who stood fast. And the courage of an old man built a bunch of courage in a bunch of young men who were watching there. Because Jesus is going to build his church. And then in the year 303, another evil, wicked, God-hating man by the name of Diocletian unleashes another wave of persecution in the Roman Empire. And these gates of hell have opened up to let out yet another attack. And the Christians are on the run. And ten short years later, through a number of remarkable providences, when Constantine is on the throne, he issues the Edict of Milan to end the persecution of Christians. And by the year 325, he asks all the pastors and bishops to come to his lakeside cabin, and he feeds them lobster so they can work out a document that agrees on the Trinity because the Trinity is under assault. (laughs) Ten short years later, Because the gates of hell cannot prevail against the Christian church. The darkness cannot put out the light. And then we go to Prague. And a man by the name of Jan Hus who starts finding things in the Bible about justification by faith alone. And not through some kind of sacramental system from the Pope of Rome. And he starts preaching. And he likewise gets put to the flames. And right before he dies, he says, you can kill this goose. And hus means goose in Czech. You can cook this goose, but in a hundred years from now will come a swan that you will never silence. And a hundred years, almost to the day, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther is born. And I would almost believe in modern-day prophecy, except he called Luther a swan, and nobody would ever accuse Luther of being a swan. (laughs) Had he said, a bull in a china shop, I may change my position on current charismatic gifts. But nevertheless, this bull in a china shop shows up almost a hundred years to the day, teaching the same things that Hus had said before him. Because Jesus is going to build his church. Martin Butzer, the Swiss reformer, facing a trial in front of a prince, under persecution and under threat of further persecution, says, yes, You can keep hammering at me, but please remember, Prince, that the church is an anvil which has worn out many a hammer because the gates of hell cannot prevail. And maybe some of us haven't read that verse in Ecclesiastes that tells us not to ask why the former days were better than the current days because the Bible knows our sinful urge to misinterpret history and to get nostalgic and treat the old days like they were better than the new days. And so maybe we wish we were in Puritan New England in the 1730s, in the good old days, where the grandchildren of the Puritans who had the foresight and the courage to come across and settle a new land were now rich and fat and indifferent. And young men were sitting in taverns, wasting their lives, not working, intentionally delaying marriage because they had it, frankly, far too good because of their grandparents. And public drunkenness was a problem, and the young men were known as worthless and lazy. That's the good old days. The church was rife with unconverted ministers. Many say the majority of ministers were unconverted. It was just a job. That's the good old days of the 1730s. 
until God sends in another torpedo. A man by the name of William Tennant who builds this little log cabin to train ministers in. And he does this in eastern Pennsylvania and a few years later, uh, once word gets to Europe, the Europeans are making fun of this little log college. Ha ha ha, our seminaries in Germany and France are wonderful. These Americans have this little log college. Well, that log college moved across the Delaware River into New Jersey and became Princeton Seminary, which was an absolute bulwark for conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing scholarship for many years. And then when the gates of hell start to release this ambiguous, vague kind of mustard gas, the stench of liberalism starts to waft over the battlefield of the Americas once again. And the 1920s look desperate because the old Christian faith has once again come into conflict with the prevailing spirit of humanism and secularism and liberalism. And as this mustard gas is slowly wafting across the field, it looked like it was going to get into everything. But a number of those Princeton men, led by Jake Gresham Machen, moved this little log college, Princeton Seminary, back across the river and established Westminster Seminary, which is 100 years old and faithful to this day. Because Jesus is building his church. And the gates of hell cannot prevail. And in our own day, those gates are letting out threats. They're sending enemies. They're sending battles our way again. Belching out death in the form of statism and feminism and sexual confusion and rebellion and a very literal love of death for old people and for very small people. And isn't it glorious that those little small people are reminding us that there's life in this church? I can always preach louder than a baby can cry, so bring it on. (laughs) Jesus has promised to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And this promise has proven itself over so many times through history that we ought never to doubt it or lose heart ever again. The church has grown and expanded and become stronger with every opponent that those foul gates send our way. The commentator Matthew Henry says on this passage, The church may be foiled in particular encounters, but in the main battle it shall come off more than a conqueror. And we know from the Bible that God is a storytelling God who loves cliffhanger stories. He loves to stack against the deck against himself and then come out victorious in the most inexplicable way. Herbert Schlossberg writes in his book, uh, Idols for Destruction, that the Bible can correctly be interpreted as a string of triumphs disguised as disasters. Every significant triumph in the Bible and in church history looked like a disaster at that moment. And God comes through. This is how history operates. Chesterton tells us that the only perfectly divine thing, the one glimpse of God's paradise given on earth is to fight a losing battle and never lose it. That's heaven on earth. That's the biblical vision. And so when we face our own battles in our own day and wonder how the church will continue on against all the odds, against everything that's stacked against us, we need to remember this promise from Christ that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. He's painting a picture. And many people read that the gates of hell will not prevail and assume that this means that hell will not succeed in completely wiping out the church. And that is absolutely true. The gates of hell will never wipe out the Christian church. Jesus, however, is not merely promising to keep a remnant or to maintain a church on life support. What's he promising? To build his church. In his book, A Primer on Worship and Reformation, Douglas Wilson notes that Jesus promised us that the gates of Hades would not prevail against the church. However, it is not often noted that the gates of Hades are not an offensive weapon. Hades is being besieged by the church. It is not the other way around. And we need to learn to see that biblical worship of God is a powerful battering ram. And each Lord's Day, we have the privilege of taking another swing. Do you see that? Gates protect Gates don't run out onto the battlefield and attack. Gates protect. They're on the run. We're swinging that battering ram against the gates of hell every time we worship like this. Okay? Because worship is warfare. And until we get that, our worship will remain impotent. Worship is warfare. Ephesians says that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. 
And when we gather and we sing and we sit under God's word and we pray together and we fellowship and create bonds and friendships, we are engaged in warfare. It's a warfare for the cosmos. And Jesus says we win. Can we worship like we win? Can we pray like we win? Can we read the Bible as though this is actually the word of God? This helps us to gain a clear focus on what we're supposed to be doing. This view of the church that is being built up through history is not just isolated to this verse, thankfully. This is entirely consistent with all of the kingdom parables that Jesus has given. It's consistent with Daniel's vision of this rock hurtling down and establishing its kingdom. It's consistent with Peter and Paul's imagery of living stones being added layer by layer, generation by generation. It's consistent with God's favorite Bible verse, Psalm 110.1, which has the Father telling the Son to sit at his right hand when? until all his enemies have been made his footstool. And that imagery itself is worth noting. Ancient kings who conquered would seal their victory by having the defeated king prostrate himself in front of the conquering king, and the victor would put his head or his foot on the defeated king's throat as a symbolic gesture of victory. And that's what Psalm 110.1 pictures Christ doing while he is ascended at the right hand of the Father. Psalm 110.1 says this is happening while Jesus is away. In other words, Christ does this through the ministry of his church. He takes a bride along on his dominion mission. And some people think, well, this sure sounds good, but it sure doesn't look that way to me, Matt. I've got the newspaper. I've got social media. This maybe sounds great, but I'm not seeing it. I'd suggest two things. One, I think... This is one of those things we've been told so many times, we think it's just true. Can you interpret history through believing eyes? Because I think we will see there is not a straight line of conquest, but there is absolutely a line of conquest through history for Christianity, even despite setbacks. And I'd also ask, what are we trying to exegete? The newspapers or the word of God? And I'll further ask you, what did the world look like to some of these heroes of the faith who had the odds stacked against them? What do you think North America looked like to J. Gresham Machen when everybody knew Jonah wasn't a real guy and Moses never wrote the Pentateuch and Jesus wasn't born of a virgin and that was believing Christian scholarship? What did the world look like to Machen? He knew he was against the odds and he liked his odds. What did Europe look like to Jan Hus? Unwinnable. A voice in the wilderness. But he saw with believing eyes. He saw that the promise of God is more potent than the newspaper headlines that tell him to shut up because he doesn't have a chance anyway. What did the Roman Empire look like to 86-year-old Polycarp? Did it look feasible that he would win? Absolutely not. But Polycarp saw with the eyes of faith, and he did win. What do you think the world looked like to Abram when he said, you'll be the father of a vast nation, and he's almost 100 years old without a child? These men looked with the eyes of faith rather than at the newspaper headlines, rather than what looked feasible, they saw with believing eyes. And we likewise need to stand on the promises that Jesus Christ is going to build his church, even when we live in dark days, even when it looks like it's 10 to 1. The Bible should tell you if you're 10 on 1, you should like your odds. God will find a way to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. But I think this neglect of this dominion mandate of the promises of Christ for his church to subdue creation to the glory of God, I think is one of the chief contributors to the idleness and to the softness and to the lack of direction and lack of mission and the lethargy of the church today. And I think that's why it's particularly pronounced in young men. Because young men have been told either that being masculine is some kind of disorder that you need to get medicated for until you can sit nicely like a girl can, or they've been sold an opposite bill of goods which treats women like objects, okay? As though your own pleasure is the chief good of man. And if we're going to reclaim this vision for the church, it must start with the men catching this vision. To keep telling ourselves that this is impossible, that the odds are against us, it's just going from bad to worse every year, it's worse than the last year, and there's no hope, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Imagine a hockey coach going into the dressing room at every practice and saying, guys, here's how we're going to do our breakout, and this is, you know, I want you guys to do this all, and we're going to lose this game 7 to nothing. And then the next week he comes in, and and we're going to work on how we're going to move the puck in the neutral zone, and I want you guys to do it perfectly, but by the way, we're going to lose this game 14 to 1. 
it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. (laughs) Jesus doesn't talk that way. Jesus says he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Okay? He's the coach telling these guys, find your courage. Doesn't matter what the odds look like. Here's the game plan. And this is the picture that Christ is painting of building his church, running a siege on the gates of hell. And after all, that is exactly where Peter made his confession that Jesus is Lord. But this means that holiness is warfare. This means that the Christian life is warfare. This means that making love is warfare. This means that educating children is warfare. Music is warfare. Laughter is warfare. Culture building is warfare. And most importantly, what we are doing on Sunday mornings is warfare. This is a battle for the cosmos. Can you catch that vision? Jesus Christ is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Can we worship that way? I suggest we must. We must. We're dealing with glory all around us. And the defeat of hell and the growth of the church are promised by Jesus himself. And that means we are guarded from being shrill. We're guarded from being joyless. We can be happy warriors. You hear stories like that from war, where where men are happy. There's camaraderie. There's this band of brothers that builds up when they're on mission together. The joy that we have as we go out and obey King Jesus ought to be real. Christians can never be shrill. Christians can never be angry. And they cannot be joyless. And we certainly cannot be indifferent. We must be on mission. We must be following King Jesus' designs. Because remember, this is his church, not ours. And it must operate according to his plans and not ours. And that means that the shallow, goofy stuff that gets a pass in too many worship services is just off the table. Okay? Marvel superhero Easter at the mega church is not even up for discussion. Okay? The goofiness has to stop. Jesus doesn't tell us to wad up your Kleenexes and start pelting the gates of hell with that. This is potent stuff. This is glory. This is potent. This is powerful. Swing the battering ram like you mean it. Men, sing. Okay? Men, lead your families. This is the mission we have been given. Glory is heavy. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Glory is heavy. Glory is serious business. Glory has joy instead of frivolity and giddiness. Joy is serious business. And we must follow instructions. Jesus goes on to say, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So this is Christ's kingdom, and it's his church that is central to that kingdom. But as he prepares for his death, burial, resurrection, and eventual ascension back to the Father, he hands the keys of the kingdom to his church, to the apostles. These are the foundational men that Ephesians 2 spoke of. These are the men who are responsible for shepherding this new church, this new covenant people, in this new covenant era as the last remnants of the old covenant wind down. Wouldn't that have been a wild time to be alive? The new covenant's growing, the old covenant's winding down, and we've got to figure all this out with Jews and Gentiles together? I bet you that had no shortage of difficulty, and that's in large part why we have our Bible, is these men were figuring this out with the assistance of the Holy Spirit. These are the men who author Scripture as they're carried along by the Spirit so that their foundational authority lives with us still. This is the keys to the kingdom. Christ is not saying that heaven will bend to whatever they say. A more literal translation would read here that whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. So that is to say they have been given authority to bind and loose, to forbid and to pardon according to what has been declared in heaven. And the apostles do this in a unique foundational manner. They're ministering in this foundational and and transitional period of history as scripture is being added to and as the new covenant is being built up. So their callings and giftings are unique. They possess the word of God and the authority to author the word of God in a way that no one today does. But by analogy, we're still in the same kind of business. When preachers afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, they are echoing this ministry of the apostles, of binding and loosing. 
when the law is read in corporate worship to remind us of our sin before God and our duties to Him. And then when the offer of assurance of pardon is offered, God's shepherds are still binding and loosing under the Word of God. And all of this is happening under the Lordship of Christ. The church is not infallible. Her leaders today are not infallible. So what we don't have here is absolute authority, but we do have genuine authority for the church and for her elders to bind and to loose under the lordship of Christ and according to scripture. And then Jesus ends by telling his disciples to keep things quiet. It's not yet time for this to go public. And so I hope we've seen that our initial questions have largely been answered and clarified. What is the church? Well, the church is the assembly of all those that God has called out of the world and joined to Christ in covenant community. What is the church's ultimate foundation? Well, it is Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, and he lays the rest of that foundation through the ministry of the prophets and the apostles. Where is the church going? What does our future look like? The church is being built up by Christ through history. It is storming the gates of hell, and it is Christ's designated weapon for destroying his enemies on earth. We are to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the deep, as we await our king to return in final judgment, in perfect consummation, to finalize all things that we can truly say that Christ will be all in all. And what kind of authority does the church have? How are we to operate? Well, we're under the authority of Christ, and he exercises that authority through the scriptures that his apostles left for us. And so to a lesser degree, through the shepherds that sit under those scriptures today. And when we consider how our own age has pushed out this classical vision for the mission of the church, it's not hard to understand some of the practical changes we've also seen. Some of those other things start to make sense. We have tin-clad turkey barns instead of cathedrals today. It's communicating. It's speaking. When we lose sight of what the church is and what its mission is, the vacuum will naturally be filled with our own ideas. We're going to have music stands because we want a skit instead of a sermon. Okay? We want to do our own things that provide our own sense of joy and pragmatic entertainment. Battering ram style music gets replaced with impotent, shallow, self-focused music. And story time starts to replace the preaching of God's word. Christ is building his church and he has special application for all of us. And I want to make special application, again, for us as men. Man and woman are designed to mirror Christ's mission for the church. And has anyone ever noticed that Adam was given the dominion mandate before Eve was even alive? The dominion mandate is for men. For men. And then God gives a bride to help. Mirroring the Christian church. God's plan for victory through Christ was there before the foundation of the world and he's created a church to be his helpmate. The dominion mandate is given to Adam and then to Noah. And men are designed to take hold of creation for God's glory because we are to image Christ. And so Christian dominion includes worship, family life, work, laughter, sports, and anything else where you can press the lordship of Christ. And for those of us as fathers, this means that we work hard to provide for our families, and this is an absolute non-negotiable. And the most important way that we provide for our families is to bring them to the Lord daily. Family worship is a non-negotiable for fathers. If we want to see our children and our grandchildren be the next layer of these living stones, we need to start shaping them so they fit because who, many, who knows how many layers are going to get put on top of them. We need to start shaping this as we think long-term for the kingdom of God. And so if you're a father, this means leading your family in scripture and in prayer, preferably at mealtime or at bedtime when everyone's together. And I've mentioned this before. We use the Table Talk magazine. We read scripture. We read the Table Talk. Go around the table. Somebody can say something they learned or something they were reminded of. If your kids are younger, maybe you can find a Bible storybook and start placing the little stories that are age appropriate for three and five and seven-year-olds so that they know what all these pieces are when one day they want to start putting them together and seeing, Christian through the, or seeing history through the lens of the Bible. 
So there's not a one-size-fits-all here, but family worship is absolutely essential. If you're a grandpa and you're thinking, well, it's too late for that, you can use your opportunities to model godliness and lead your grandchildren to the Lord. And humanly speaking, the reason I'm here, instead of having burnt my brain on psychedelics, is because of my grandfather. It's not too late, men. It's never too late. And if you're a young man, you can start to discipline yourself right now. Family worship isn't going to start just coming easily and naturally once you've got kids if you're not disciplining yourself today. Be in the word now. Start practicing so it makes more sense later. And I'm very thankful for the seemingly growing mindset among young men to be active and to be masculine. But this needs to move beyond just being red-pilled against the bad stuff. You need a positive vision. You need to train yourself to be the kind of husband that Christ is as he is on mission with his church. Notice that Christ is not barking orders from a distance. He's promising to be intimately involved as he builds his church. Yes, dominion belongs to Christ, but he does it with his bride at his side, and that is how we as men are to operate. The kind of masculinity that serves itself and then expects a warm meal when you get home and a warm body to sleep with is not masculinity. That's self-service. That's weakness. A real man shows his love by bleeding and leading the way Christ leads on this dominion mandate. He helps himself by caring for her so that she, the Christian church, can play her role in the dominion of Christ in his creation. And this is exactly the picture here. Guys, women take time because the church takes time. Children take time because God's children take time. Dominion isn't bravado, it's obedience to the Lord. But regardless of your age and your station, if you're a man, you are mirroring Christ in his dominion. Being on mission and promoting a serious yet joyful advance for yourself and for those around you is an absolute necessity. You are sinning if you are not modeling godly masculinity in your life and the lordship of Christ. There's plenty of applications that we can make more broadly for the church here as well. In our worship service on Sunday mornings, we are intentional about including lots of scripture in our service. We're serious about the covenant renewal format of worship so that it follows the rhythm and cuts with the grain of Scripture overall, not just in the words, but also in the patterns. Reading law and assurance. Making sure children are sitting in here so that they're learning those patterns and those words and those songs and those rhythms. And this is all good and right. But it won't accomplish much if we're just going through the motions without explaining and thinking through what we're doing. If it becomes vain tradition. So Christ is building his church. Each Lord's Day, we are taking another swing at the gates of hell. And one day, Christ will appear, and all heaven will break loose. And every last pocket of resistance will be vanquished to the uttermost. And so I want each of us to consider this morning, are your actions consistent with that vision? That Christ will build his church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your glorious promise that you have all dominion over your creation. You have uh, by right of creation and then you have it doubly by right of purchasing it with your own blood and coming to earth as a physical man to overcome the world, to reconcile all things to yourself. Lord, and yet because you are merciful and kind and patient, you create a bride out of your side to come along on the mission with you. Lord, and I pray that each one here, man or woman, senior or child, would see what a glorious vision you have painted for your church. You have promised to build it. You have promised that the gates of hell will not prevail. And Lord, whether we live in an age of advance or whether we live in an age of seeming decline, I pray that each one of us here would have the courage to be in your word and not in your circumstances to see what you have called us to, that we would be potent warriors, joyful warriors in your kingdom as we promote laughter in our households, as we stay in the word, as we love our wives well, as we build businesses, as we worship corporately with potent music, potent preaching, potent fellowship, and potent love for one another. Lord, that each one would see this living stones in this church and around the world and see that we are on mission 
because we trust your promise that you will build your church and the gates of hell cannot possibly prevail over us. Thank you, Lord. May we give you all the glory and amen. have found ourselves in a time where the consequences of ideas are reaching their logical conclusions. The God-forsaken, unbelieving philosophies of the 1920s, 40s, and 60s are no longer constrained by an outwardly Christian customs. This means our age is lost. Unbelieving ideas are creating a chaotic hellscape on earth, and our age is looking for a compelling story to explain history and fill it with meaning. There are thousands of idolatrous stories and one true one. We have a God-man who overcame to overcome and redeem. He came to repair the ruins, to restore paradise, to remarry heaven and earth, God and creation, and to put his conquering foot on the neck of every last enemy. And at this point in history, he is carrying this work on through the building of the Christian church. This truth gives us a mission and orients us towards a target. Christ enchants history with the mission of the church to storm the gates of hell and win. And while others try in vain to re-enchant their meaningless lives with the old pagan myths, 
Chesterton reminds us, from the grave, I would add, that when the neo-pagans set out to do everything that the old pagans did, the final thing the old pagans did was to be christened. Receive the benediction from Romans 16, 20. And these are Paul's words to the Christian church. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and go in peace.